think Bitcoin is volatile for a reason. I think it, it kind of speeds up adoption. Like it shifts coins mm -hmm. from the weak holders to the strong holders. And like, mm -hmm. that's kind of how adoption will continue to play out in my opinion for foreseeable future. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Joe Burnett, who is an analyst with Blockware Solutions. In our discussion, we cover Bitcoin's mining properties, its volatility, and how that leads to an endless number of investors going down the rabbit hole for the first time. We also discuss Bitcoin's hash rate, institutional mining operations, and the cash flow potential of Bitcoin mining. We look into why hedge funds and other institutional players see mining as a means to create a mathematically defined set of cash flows on an asset that otherwise doesn't naturally offer this mechanism. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. Thanks everybody for joining today. I've got with me Joe Burnett of Blockware. And today we're going to talk a little bit about mining. We're going to talk about Joe's personal story into Bitcoin and uh, just kind of get a better feel for you know, what he thinks about uh, the asset class, mining, and, and how he works with institutions in this space. So Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. So yeah, my name is Joe Burnett. I'm an analyst here at Blockware Solutions. Before I get into what we do at Blockware, basics of mining and, and all of that stuff, I guess I'll give you a little bit of background about you know myself, how I got into Bitcoin, and kind of how I think about Bitcoin. So myself uh, went to the University of Georgia, both undergrad and master's degree, studied MIS, computer science and analytics. Uh, while I was in grad school at Georgia, I worked for a firm called Mimesis Capital. Uh, people in the Bitcoin space might be familiar with them. They're family office uh, based out of Taiwan, actually, but early investors in like companies like Unchained Capital, uh, Foundation Devices, Umbral, the full node um, software, a bunch of other uh, early Swan Bitcoin, a bunch of early, other early stage Bitcoin companies. Did that when I, when I was in grad school. After grad school, I worked at uh, EY uh, doing technology consulting before I joined Blockware, which I'm now uh, an analyst at. So that's kind of my background, my personal background. I discovered Bitcoin while I was in school. Um, basically during, you know, 2016, 2017, I was following it on Reddit and it just kind of slowly kept inching up, you know, it went from like $200 a coin, um, to like a thousand and then to 3000. And it just, I remember being in, in some sort of like finance clubs in Georgia and we would, people would talk about Bitcoin and we'd talk about equities. And it was just interesting to, to see everyone, you know, try, who was kind of going on the path towards like traditional, like wall street type stuff. Um, and, and I was more like into computers at the time, but considering, uh, that path back, back in college. And we just kept watching Bitcoin go up and it was like, what the heck is this? So, uh, basically, you know, found it on Reddit, uh, it took me forever to, to really actually buy some. Um, but once I, once I like bought some, uh, and I, unfortunately when I first got into it, I was buying some, some other coins at first when I didn't really, you know, know what, what I was doing. Um, but I eventually kind of focused on on bitcoin and and i i can get into i guess why i think bitcoin is is kind of different from from not only uh all the crypto assets but i can get into why bitcoin is different from 
traditional assets as well. So I think like when I first discovered Bitcoin and like when other people first discover it, they kind of see it as some sort of like bubble or Ponzi scheme at first. And I think that's like kind of actually very intuitive, uh, especially for smart people that, that work in finance. But I think one thing that's, you know, kind of unique about Bitcoin and, and just money in general is, is monetary value is dependent on other humans. So like if you have, if you're trapped on an island alone, monetary goods like, like gold or dollar bills basically serve like no use for you. So, so when you're trapped on an island though, like a fishing pole, it might be valuable to you. You know, like most goods, the fishing pole is not dependent on other humans to be useful. You know, like it's, it's a tool that would help you obtain food, uh, whether you're alone or you're with billions of other people. So, but, but basically because Bitcoin's value is dependent on other humans, it doesn't necessarily mean it's this Ponzi or, or bubble based on a collective hallucination. So I think it's important to understand like why so many people are, are passionate about Bitcoin and kind of have converged on Bitcoin and are using it as the savings technology. And it's because I think of it's Bitcoin's superior monetary properties. And so this Bitcoin's basically this monetary shelling point because of its scarcity, its divisibility, its portability, its durability. And so Bitcoin is kind of this tool or it's good. And the free market is kind of evaluating different tools and different goods like gold, seashells, silver, Bitcoin. And they're kind of, uh, we're all kind of like converging on certain goods to be used as money. So like the underlying like reason behind Bitcoin's value accrual is this like game theory among individuals just acting in their own self-interest. And so people think of this like collective hallucination that's, you know, buying into Bitcoin and holding into Bitcoin, but this, you know, value, this price that Bitcoin has basically formed as a result of Bitcoin's superior monetary properties and its humans kind of converging on Bitcoin, whether it's just because of the price is going up or because they understand that, hey, like this is actually fundamentally better money basically by looking at its objective monetary properties. And, you know, that's why Bitcoin uh, over the long run, over a four-year holding period, uh, outperforms almost every other asset so far. Yeah, and early on you were talking about um, one, the Ponzi. I think anybody coming from traditional finance, that's what keeps them out, at least for a little while. You kick the tires on it because um, coming through that route and hundreds of years of you know traditional finance and, and innovations through that, it's the things that just continuously go up for no reason usually turn out to be Ponzi's. Um, when you come through these periods of where money is in question and transitions happen, it's exactly that, right? This new uh, asset comes into play that people use to exchange as money or, or put value on uh, as money. And, and that other component that you kind of talked around there was that's where the power of the network effect is. And if you don't have that network effect, then it can't be money because not enough people you know, you might have two or three people or, or the reference that you had if you're on an island and, uh, you know, money's of no value on an island because there's not an economy. And, and if there's only five other people, it doesn't really benefit anybody to be the richest one out there. Right. But the fishing pole actually becomes money. And that's where some of those um, similarities between cigarettes and prison or, you know, just other things and baseball cards for kids become money because, 
there's enough people trading them and enough people interested in, in something we talked about uh, beforehand. You have these big crashes like what you've had basically today and the last weeks, enough people opt out for whatever reason they sell. And then there's new people that wish that they had bought along the way, but never did because they felt like it was too expensive. And then they get in and then they go down the rabbit hole and then they have a different story, but sort of similar to, to kind of how you came on board. Right. And how I came on board and how everybody comes on board. There's that point where you're like, man, I missed it the first time, but I'm not going to miss it the second time. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to the idea that like Bitcoin is this asset with like two unique characteristics. There's no counterparty risk when you hold your own private keys and there's no dilution risk. I mean, it's the only asset in the world where there's only going to be 21 million and that's immutable. It can't be changed. Um, but yeah, exactly like you were saying. To the dilution, there, there's not to the 21 million, but as we've seen this past year, we've got some products coming out and, you know, I think that's been the, the downside of uh, institutions and Wall Street, if we've kind of now morphed from a culture that was Bitcoin standard and HODL and and more productive focus, focusing on productivity and doing things that have returns. And now you've got the short-term behaviors again, like what we have in traditional finance. And you've really seen that sync up in the last, you know, definitely all of this year, but uh, for longer periods in the last couple of years. So it's not uncorrelated anymore because you're having those behaviors and you're having futures and ETFs and stuff tied on top of it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. It's too early, but uh, I do think that point is is warranted there. Um, there is a fixed supply, whereas most other monies of recent times, uh, there isn't a fixed supply. I mean, gold, but you know, it doesn't, you can't transport it very well. So, so this is definitely a better one. So um, on just the mining front and kind of what you guys do, um, on a day-to-day basis in, in your job, what does that look like and what kind of clients are you guys serving or, or what's their interest level? Yeah, for sure. So at Blockware Solutions, the company that I work with, um, work for right now, uh, I have more of like an analyst role. So doing more like just general research on, on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, but the company Blockware Solutions basically offers like a turnkey Bitcoin mining service. So if, if you're most of our clients are either high net worth individuals or institutions or hedge funds. Basically, they have the idea that, hey, I need to get exposure to Bitcoin mining. I have the capital, but I don't have the expertise. I don't know how to procure the machines. I don't know how to build the facilities. I don't know how to, to, to hook it up to the internet. I don't know how to get the negotiate the, the proper electricity rate with the local utility or the grid. And it's it's a it's a big hassle. So basically, Blockware offers this this turnkey Bitcoin mining service where you just simply write us a check, send a wire, and we buy the machines, deploy the machines, plug them in, and basically you just hook up your your Bitcoin address and your and your mining pool, and you start earning Bitcoin every day. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, we we mainly focus on you know, like I said, high net worth individuals and and, and hedge funds that want to get exposure to the space and don't know how to do it. So that sounds pretty easy. Just uh, send in some money and and avoid all the hassle of the the at home burning things down or dissipating heat. Um, so are they all connected into just server farms that you guys host for them, and then that links to a pool and then to the wallet and such. Exactly. So Blockware has uh, facilities in Kentucky and Pennsylvania where like we've already built out containers and, and large, you know, 
buildings that actually have these all of these mining rigs in them and you know negotiated contracts with the local utility local grid worked with senators in kentucky so like it's definitely very uh one of the best like bitcoin and i'm i'm not even on the operation side but it's one of the best like operated bitcoin companies bitcoin mining you know farms like in the mm -hmm. u.s that probably helps most people out because you have a problem getting a and you guys may not have but most people have a problem getting asic miners or just keeping up with the equipment whereas as a big provider you you guys probably have some clout in that space yeah no i mean mason Japa is the ceo of block where he always talks about how he originally when he was one of, he was one of the co-founders and when he originally started Blockware, he was talk, talking about how crazy and, and kind of sketchy, I guess it, it was to buy Bitcoin mining rigs from the Bitmain back in like 2016, 2017. Um, he said, you know, you would basically send Bitcoin uh, or a wire transfer to this, you know, random Chinese bank and you would wait like three months or more and pray that they didn't scam you and hopefully one day your machines show up and it's you know like million dollars worth of rigs that you just got delivered to your house <laughs> um so he's basically you know it's like all right there's a major problem in like figuring out how to procure these machines and like in a, a way that is standard among supply chain procurement mm -hmm. and uh he you know he, he found that that hole in the market and decided to service uh us customers uh, one thing that's uh really cool about blockware that i was one of the reasons why I joined the company is is we we had basically originally had this mission to to bring hash rate to the U.S. back when back when Blockware started in 2017, most ha most hash rate was in China, and so mm -hmm. Mason and a bunch of other guys started this company to bring the hash rate to the U.S., make Bitcoin more decentralized, and you know actually you know give people in the U.S. give U.S. investors the ability to to buy Bitcoin mining rigs and have them deployed, you know within their own jurisdiction. So that's a good point. Let's talk about that there. Maybe explain a little bit about what hash rate is, why it's important, and uh, specifically if all the ha hash rate was in China as it was, what that could mean for the monetary network. Yeah. So hash rate is basically a measure of how much volume a, a, either a specific miner is producing or the entire network is producing. So basically right now the the network, for example, is doing about like 220 exahash, which is basically a ton of Bitcoin mining machines, <laughs> like your average machine or your average, you know, company, or like if you look at Riot and Mara, they probably have 1% of the entire network hash rate and they have thousands and thousands of machines in the US. So hash rate is basically a, a way to measure like how many hashes your machine is, is producing. And mm -hmm. from hashes, you're basically trying to find a block and add it to the blockchain. And so if there's no hash, there is no network, which means there's no value, no way for stuff to transport over it. Yeah, exactly. And, yep. and going back to what you originally asked about if all of the hash rate was, was concentrated in China, basically, you know, at the end of the day, I think nodes are the ones that really um, control Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. at the most, what they, what they could do is, is censor transactions if they don't like certain people transacting on the network, they could simply censor those transactions and they would never get added to the blockchain. Um, but at the end of the day, like nodes are the ones that, that control Bitcoin. Like they couldn't, they couldn't increase the supply of Bitcoin per se. They couldn't mm -hmm. um, do nefarious, they couldn't change the block size. We learned that from the block size war 2015, 2017. Um, 
but they they can censor transactions. That's that's basically what they could do. Mm-hmm. But if you got enough hashing power, you could take over the network. Cen- censoring transactions, yeah. but like my node, if you try to change yeah. some some key consensus mechanism with yeah, the Bitcoin, consensus would yeah. You you would you would basically create your own network. Like if you yeah. si- decided to give yourself fifty Bitcoin for the next block subsidy, the next block instead yeah. of six point two five, which it is right now, nobody my node would wouldn't join. accept it. A yeah. lot of nodes wouldn't accept yeah. it. A lot of people don't understand Bitcoin at all, let alone hash rate mining yeah. or whatever the heck that is. It's and it's hard to to explain, I guess, too. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think that's a, it, it is hard to explain. That's what makes it hard. Um, so and then from an investor perspective, outside of just you know trying to mine bitcoin what's their interest why are they interested in mining yeah i mean i think with the correct strategy mining is probably one of the best ways to dollar cost average into bitcoin if you can minimize your capex on on procuring mining machines and the infrastructure build out of your containers or your buildings or however you're doing it and then you can also minimize your opex you're going to you're going to be able to basically mine bitcoin at a discount to the dollar price it's trading at so like right now, if you have one of the uh, new Bitmain XP, S19 XPs, which come out at the end of July of this year, actually, even with the recent uh, price drop in Bitcoin, if you're operating at a, you know, in one of our, the Blockware data centers, you're, you're, you're running at an operating margin of like 75% right now. Mm-hmm. And so you're still spinning off, you know, putting in $1 of electricity and you get $4 worth of Bitcoin or whatever it is. And it's pretty... Um, it's pretty interesting when you think about it that way. Not only that, um, new generation mining rigs historically have a beta that is like very close to one. It's slightly less than one, but very close to one. So you're not necessarily giving up, giving off like too much upside. Um, if Bitcoin, you know, just ripped from 30 K to 60 K the, your rig that you bought for per se $10,000 might now be worth almost $20,000. And so while your rig appreciated, you know, a certain amount, you were also mining Bitcoin during that time. Now, over the long run, of course, your rig depreciates, you know, I'm talking like five, five plus years, but we're kind of at like an interesting inflection point for like rig depreciation before, you know, back in like 2013, when, when rigs originally came out, a new mining rig would come out, a new ASIC, and it would basically completely make Wipe all of the old machines completely obsolete. So the old machines would be worthless overnight and the new mining rigs would just be spitting off crazy amounts of cash flow. But over time, as like the Bitcoin mining rig and manufacturing, you know, specs have kind of gotten up to date with like just traditional technology chips, um, these jumps, these leaps in, in efficiency that making, you know, making your rig more profitable, more efficient, um, don't happen like nearly as often. So these mining rigs that used to last Back in 2013, like they could last one year. Now they can last five plus years. Like the S9, which Bitmain's S9 um, came out in 2017. People are still running it today. Like it's like 20% of the entire global network hash rate right now. And so, you know, this, that rig, for example, has been running for five plus years, even with, you know, this price decline that we've seen recently, um, which is pretty, pretty crazy if you think about it. Well, so it's, it's almost sounds a lot like uh, used cars. So historically, they just depreciate really fast. You know, four years later, it's not worth near as much and just keeps depreciating. You can drive it, but when you go to the resell it, it's not really all that much there. 
but in the past couple of years with inflation and all the craziness that's gone on, those used cars, specifically trucks, have appreciated in price. So you're selling a four or five year old truck for more than you bought it for used at that time, which is kind yeah. of weird. When I was uh, working at UI, uh, the engagement I, I was on was basically a CarMax competitor. So I was getting a like a live view of what that what the Mannheim used car index uh, was was doing, and I will say it, they the people working there at the at the company that I was with uh, were like amazed as as to the prices of used cars. It was and there was like just obviously no no supply out there. It was crazy, but yeah, mm-hmm. similar similar idea. I mean, Bitcoin, unlike a used car, I guess like a Bitcoin mining machine has has cash flows. Uh, yep. cars i guess don't don't have cash flows unfortunately <laughs> and is but, that uh, essentially what drives the institutional buyer or or the institutional interest there um whereas you know bitcoin itself if you just go buy the coin there's no cash flow tied to it right you have exactly. you know an investment asset and that's the money and the savings technology and all that but outside of that it just sits there i mean there's ways that you can add some yield to it now, but uh, you couldn't in past years. But uh, what kept a lot of institutional investors out was that I can't do math to say this has value for some specific reason other than a belief. Um, So maybe you can talk on that. Is that why institutional investors come to guys like you uh, in Blackware? Exactly. That's So last year I I wrote like a, a, I think it was just a Twitter thread, but it was basically talking about that idea. Like the way Wall Street and, and traditional institutions are are getting into Bitcoin is through Bitcoin mining, because Bitcoin mining, you know, is actually a, a, a an industry that spits off like nice positive cash flows even after the crash to, crash to thirty k, um, and it's it's you know growing really fast. Like Marathon and and and, and Riot can use debt; they can use convertibles um, to 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 leverage up, you know buy more miners and then their, their equity, uh, uh, stock price keeps going up. They're basically able to, you know, borrow money at very cheap rates, um, deploy the new S19 XP and they start spitting off like massive, massive free cash flows. Um, so it's like an, a very interesting way that like, you know, people have a hard time, you know, I guess buying Bitcoin directly because it has no free cash, no cash flow, but these machines spit off Bitcoin, whether you, mm-hmm. you sell the Bitcoin, for, for actual dollars or you, you keep the Bitcoin and hold it. It's a different story, but it is a, a completely different, you know, it's a different idea compared to just holding Bitcoin itself. And is there a period, you know, do you have to mine for a year, two years, three years? And some of it depends on the machine and, and the hash rate and all of that. But as a general rule, when you lay this out for an investor, I imagine it's probably nicer than a spreadsheet, but it's just spreadsheet math that if you put this CapEx in, and you wait this long, this is give or take how many coins you'll mine. And you could sell those in the open market, or you could sell part of them, or you could hold them, whatever you want to do. Kind of going through the math example. That's what, you know, developer crowd or just people that have been in Bitcoin for a long time. It's hard for them to understand, like, well, why won't you just give me money to do Bitcoin things? It's yeah. like, because investors will give you serious capital, but you have to show them some kind of cash flow. Yeah. You can't exactly. just, can't just number go up and it's going to work <laughs> out. Trust me. Uh, but, and that feeds into your, your first part um, where you're talking about the Ponzi. Yeah. That feels like a Ponzi to the traditional guy. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out our website. I'm not necessarily on the sales team, but yeah, they'll, they will like give you a model that you can play around with yep. various inputs and see like what your payback period time would be. You can play around with network difficulty and a bunch of other like key Bitcoin metrics. What is the Bitcoin price going to be? What's your strategy? Are you going to sell all the coins you mine? Mm -hmm. Are you going to hold, hold, you know, the coins you mine minus your electricity costs? It's a bunch of different ways you go about it, yep. but yeah, there's definitely like, um, you definitely like tra traditionally, I guess you want to hold for like three plus years, like your machine. Or actually one thing that's um, going to be interesting that we're coming out with soon is uh, that I'm helping work on is we're building a, a mining rig marketplace. And so it's a way traditionally, like when you have a mining rig, it's very hard to get liquidity for your mining rig, especially if you don't have many machines. Like if you have thousands and thousands of machines, it's kind of easier um, to find a, find like, you know, a bunch of buyers. But like, if you're, if you're just trying to sell like five, 10 rigs for 50,000, $100,000, like it's almost impossible to, to find someone that's willing to buy those easily without, you know, just paying a lot. In fees. Well, then it's back to the kind of the sketchy dynamics, which, exactly. which your CEO was trying to get away from so that, exactly. that's pretty smart yeah yeah um, so yeah so this marketplace will be able uh will enable you to buy and sell mining rigs that you've purchased with blockware which is pretty cool cool um and on the difficulty adjustment maybe you can talk a little bit about that just for listeners that kind of don't understand that what's important there and yeah so the idea um yeah i talked about hash rate er earlier which is like the amount of computing power that's on the network competing to earn the block reward when the block reward is just new Bitcoin difficulty is, is basically perfectly uh, correlated with, with hash rate. And every two weeks difficulty will adjust based off how fast new blocks are being mined. So if new blocks are being mined very fast and Bitcoin is, you know, coming out into the market faster than it should be according to the supply schedule, um, then difficulty will adjust upwards making it harder to mine more Bitcoin. And so, so it kind of keeps that supply schedule in chat intact where there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, no matter how many miners join the network or how much hash rate starts trying to, you know, compete to, to, to accumulate this, this Bitcoin. So like with price, as we saw uh, today in the last recent weeks, um, as Bitcoin has been correlated more to risk assets and everybody's just dumping everything. Um, if that hash rate falls, that's a more opportune time to, if you're already mining to get more miners or turn more on, or if you're just new to it, a better, so it's kind of a little bit um, similar to how the lottery works just for somebody that might understand that, but may think they don't understand Bitcoin. When yeah. And then another, like even bigger picture perspective is there's Charles Edwards of Capital Investments mm -hmm. has posted a bunch of mining related models before, and he has one called hash ribbons, which basically, you know, indicate that when hash rate actually starts to decline, which is very, very rare in Bitcoin, just because there's always more people mining and it's becoming more competitive, newer generation machines are coming out. Those are getting plugged in and you published this model called, you know, hash ribbons that show that when there's a somewhat significant decline in hash rate, um, it's actually like one of the best times to not only be mining Bitcoin, but to just be averaging in and buying Bitcoin uh, right. to begin with. And it historically has marked like most major bottoms uh, in Bitcoin. And that's that lottery scenario where, you know, if it's 300 million and everybody's playing, your odds of winning are very low. But let's say it's 10 million and nobody's interested. 
then your odds of winning are much higher because there's fewer people. So it's, it's that same scenario where when, you know, you know, the hash rates down, that means participants that are mining and contributing hash to the network is lower. So your odds of winning are much higher. It's just, um, that that's kind of where I was going with that. So that, that does make sense. Um, anything else big that, uh, you know, you, you think is important about mining and, and, or maybe, uh, you've seen a couple of these cycles kind of wading through these price declines. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I can think of, this isn't necessarily about mining. It's just about Bitcoin in general is I think a lot of people get into Bitcoin or and they kind of either view it as a very like, you know, short-term risky asset, which it certainly is. Um, but I think like you need to go back and look at Bitcoin's sharp ratio on like a, a four plus year holding uh, time horizon. And when you do that and sharp, sharp ratio is basically, you know, do the returns justify the massive volatility that, that Bitcoin gives gives off. And historically, you know, Bitcoin has been insanely volatile, volatile as we found out uh, today again. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, basically, if you go back and look at uh, Bitcoin sharp ratio and compare it to like U.S. equities, U.S. real estate, a bunch of other, you know, traditional asset classes. And I, I published this in, in a report on BlockwareSolutions.com that you can go, go out and see. But basically, Bitcoin sharp ratio is, is significantly higher than all other asset classes. So not only is are the returns massively higher when you, when you have that four year time horizon minimum? Um, the the returns actually are justified even by the massive volatility that, that you have to experience in the short term. And so I think when you buy Bitcoin or or you mine Bitcoin, you you, you really have to understand that hey, like this thing can fall eighty percent, and it's mm-hmm. and it has fallen eighty percent, and it regularly falls eighty percent. And you need to you know have the uh, I guess the time preference, the low time prefer- preference to to hold out and realize like, Hey, this is not a get rich quick scheme. This is something that is savings technology that requires you to hold it for four plus years or more through a halving cycle. And, you know, historically that, that has paid out for, for pretty much everyone getting involved. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a volatile ride. And I, you know, if I've expected that and I think it's going to continue happening. And that's the key there on the, the four year, uh, having schedule. That's what keeps that you know, that's the math behind it. It's just if if supply is limited and as you continue to go through, it gets more and more like where there's less and less coin. So it becomes even more limited than the prior period. Um, that's how the math works. And that's one thing Nick Zabo was kind of made made point of a number of different times is if you buy today, expect to hold it for four years. And so far that has worked out. Um, but, you know, there's a little bit different players in here with the, with the, as you mentioned, not having the low time preference, which is pushing price around a good bit more, but by the same token, it's not all that different than if you look at the last, you know, two or three peaks, uh, you get these big drawdowns and we could go even lower. Uh, but that's the, that's part of the four year ride. I think that most people that have been in one or two of these uh, kind of understand and, and every, you know, we talked about it the first, every time there's a new wave, there's new people that, that get in for the first time. And, and that drawdown really makes them go down the rabbit hole to figure it out. Um, well, I appreciate uh, you hopping on today. Is there some place that people can find you or anything you would like to point uh, listeners to? Yeah, for sure. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Joe Burnett on Twitter. My username is at III capital three capital. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter. My DMS are open. Feel free to reach out. 
Also, you know, I work at Blockware Solutions, so check out our website, blockwaresolutions.com. Uh, we also have like a, a weekly newsletter that uh, Will Clemente and I and another guy, Blake Davis, uh, put out. Definitely subscribe to that. The link to that is in my Twitter bio as well. But thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. Love talking about Bitcoin and markets. Yeah, Joe. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it.